is the creator and sustainer of all the worlds, whether those worlds are known or unknown to mankind. Does not wisdom cry and understanding put forth her voice? My name's Charlie, you may know me better as sci-fi fantasy writer C.E. Dorset, and I'm here to talk to you today about the sociological function of myth. Yeah, that sounds like a mouthful, doesn't it? It's not, actually. It's probably the most problematic thing about mythology in our world today. We start, as we have with all of the episodes in this series, with a quote from Joseph Campbell. This is from his book, Thou Art That. The third function of a traditional mythology is to validate and support a specific moral order, that order of the society out of which that mythology arose. Mm. It's that last part that gets us, isn't it? In Pathways to Bliss, he says the third function of mythology... I'm sorry, the third function of a mythological order is to validate and maintain a certain sociological system, a shared set of rights and wrongs, proprieties and or improprieties on which our particular social unit depends for its existence. Okay, so what does this mean? Anytime you are reading a myth... A story, because I would go so far as to say every story, even the ones that we tell ourselves and each other, fits into this category. The story is designed to maintain the culture and the social norms of the time it was developed, the time that the story was told. So it it is very important when you're judging a story or trying to take a moral lesson from it to remember when it was originally told. I mean, we don't take a lot of war ethos from the Iliad or the Odyssey anymore because those are stories that take place in kind of this prehistoric time. And <laughs> even beyond that, I mean, the stories that come down to us are from, you know, the early centuries BC and AD, depending on what source you're reading about them. And so they have a very Bronze Age, Iron Age, you know, early classical bent to what is right and wrong in war. So you would never look at those stories and say, this is how you should live your life. And that's not universally true. There are many stories, for example, in Plato's Symposium that you look at and you might want to actually draw some morality from because maybe they hit on something that was really good, really strong, really valid, and something that we would benefit from to be doing today. So the moral of the story, if you will, is be mindful of the culture in which the stories that you're telling retelling or looking for moral guidance from when did they come from 
And what are they really about? What is the social order that they are trying to impose, that they are trying to maintain and support? Because once you can see the actual social order of the time, you can compare that quite carefully with our modern time. Take the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul had a lot to say on a lot of different moral issues. The problem is he was writing in a first century context. And so you have to very carefully wade through what are actually interesting or important things that he was saying and contrast that with what are just artifacts of the time in which he lived. For example, Paul takes for granted that slavery exists and that slavery is not a bad thing. One of the letters that is included in the New Testament that claims to be written by Paul is actually a letter to a slave master explaining why his slave ran away, why Paul is sending the slave back to him, and why he shouldn't be upset and should treat the slave well. Now, in, this context, in the context of this very, very short letter to Philemon, the, both of the characters in the story are Christian. He's not writing to a Roman slave ma pagan slave, slave master. He's writing to a Christian slave master about a Christian slave and tells us such things as that a slave should always obey their master as they would Christ. That is not something that we should accept or condone today. In fact, here in the United States, we fought a war over that biblical interpretation, amongst other things. And that argument is what gave us the rise of, for example, the Southern Baptist Church, which at the time held very strongly to the belief that Paul was right, that Paul was giving us invaluable information about slavery and that his tacit him tacitly condoning slavery is what we should do today. That's not what we should do today. And it's very important for people who think that, oh, that means you're cherry picking the scriptures. Remember in John, Jesus tells us that there's many things that he could not tell us because we could not bear to hear them. And thus, he's going to send the Holy Spirit to guide us to all truth. And that's really what the religious process is, is about discerning through the Holy Spirit, which means not by yourself, and in groups. And we can talk about discernment a lot more in a future episode if you guys want. But discernment is a long process in which you are really looking for what is the true principle here is this a selfish reason? Is this a good reason? What are the reasons behind the decisions that are being made? And what are the reasons behind the thing that we're discussing? You know, Jesus, for example, forbids capital punishment, or at least intervenes in the case of capital punishment. And it took a long time for the Catholic Church to get to the position that, you know, capital punishment is something that Jesus would not have supported and something that the church takes a stand against as a moral ill. And so now the Catholic church is against the death penalty in all cases because there is never a justification for a state to take the life of a citizen, which is 
an interesting way to go. I tend to agree with that because once you say a state has the right to kill its citizens, it's very hard to condemn a Pol Pot or an Adolf Hitler who, granted he did that with people that he invaded as well in the case of Hitler, but Pol Pot killed his own citizens because they violated the law of Cambodia. And if it is morally acceptable for a state to pass arbitrary laws and then enforce them even to the point of death, then how can you really say anything about a country that does that? But it took the church time to discern the voice of the Holy Spirit and come to the point where it is now that, you know, yeah, even we as the church performed capital punishment. That's not something that should happen at all. And this appears to be at odds with what Paul says, where Paul tells us that God gives the government the sword to wield as an agent of God in the world. And this is a very hard passage to read when you're trying to justify protest or democracy. Because you have to remember, democracy, the right to actually speak up and protest, was not something that was accessible to Paul's mind. Paul grew up in an empire. And while the idea of the Senate never went away, and yes, every Roman did have the right to seek an audience before the emperor, these rights were rarely, if ever, exercised. And the idea that you would get something from it, you know, you really didn't expect anything. So when you have Paul telling us that we should just obey the civil authorities because they have been put in the place that they are because God put them there, then much of world history comes into question because, well, what do you do with a Hitler or a Mussolini or a Pol Pot? What about the American Revolution? Believe it or not, this was a major topic of discussion in the American Revolution, which is why the Declaration of Independence starts with this question of, are there certain moral laws that God has put into place that a government has to follow? And it starts there because it's the whole point of the Declaration is to make the argument that the crown has violated the laws of nature and nature's God, and thus the, the colonists had a right to revolt. They had to do that because they were fighting against this argument in Paul, that the crown has the right to rule you however the crown sees fit. And so we can't just accept anything that's in the text simply because it's in the text. The morality of the first century in which Paul was writing is not the morality that we live in today. It's not the world that we live in today. Like I said, he was not part of a demo democracy. Because if you try to add or take any of these principles and apply them to a democratic state, you start having problems. That's when you're looking at Paul. When you look at the apostles themselves, the apostles tended to have a much more democratic way of doing things and that they got together, they voted, everyone spoke. You know, there was kind of a 
precursor de democratic movement amongst the apostles themselves. But as far as their teachings go, there wasn't. And that's not a fault on their behalf. They had no context in which they felt that they could intervene in what was going on in government. Government was government. It just did what it did. The empire does what it does. <laughs> and that's a very, very different world from the one that we live in. And this is where in every religion, and primarily in Christianity, which is the religion that I practice, we have to be very careful. Are we trying to institute a teaching that came about in the 8th century BC or earlier because the world was a very different place back then. And especially the circumstances of the people who wrote these texts and who devised these rules. And before anybody jumps down my throat and tells me that, you know, well, the whole of scripture is God breathed. Yes. I've read what pseudo Paul wrote to, in his, in the letter to Timothy. Yes. All scripture is given by inspiration and all scripture is God breathed. Just because I whisper something in your ear doesn't mean that you write it down correctly or properly or without filtering it through your own understanding of the words, the intentions, the meaning, and your own desires. So even if we accept that every word of scripture is God breathed, that does not mean it was recorded in a way that gives it eternal standing because it doesn't warfare in the time that Deuteronomy was written is so different from the warfare today. We can glean maybe general principles or something out of the many laws. And if you've never read the book of Deuteronomy, it has many laws in there pertaining to how soldiers should be recruited, paid, trained, what they should do, how armies should be structured, what you should do in warfare. You know, this is a book that basically tells us if you think your wife's being unfaithful to you, you should, and is pregnant, you should concoct this magic potion, which it gives a recipe for, and have her drink it. If it causes her to have a miscarriage, then yes, she cheated on you. If she doesn't have a miscarriage, she didn't cheat on you, and you need to shut up. That's a very different world. We don't settle questions of infidelity that way anymore, nor should we. And the biggest problem that we have with all of this is that people do cherry pick when they're looking at the sociological implications of scripture. They look at the story, they pick the things that they can either easily do or have a prejudice against and then push that forward as if it is eternal truth. You have to remember the scripture only gives us a few universal laws. In Malachi, God says, what did I ask of you, immortal, but that you love kindness, do justice, and walk humbly before your God. That is a principle that can easily be adapted 
in any question. Is what we are doing kind? Which the word there is chesed, which could be translated as compassionate, loving. So is what we're doing kind? Is it just? And is it humble before history? You ask those three things and you can pretty much discern whether what you're doing is right or wrong very easily. You know, Jesus gives us the three other maxims that we are to follow. Well, four, if you really want to be, you know, complete here. And that is, we are to love God with all of our hearts, mind, and spirit, and love our neighbor as ourselves. We are to love one another as Jesus Christ loved us. And we are to do unto others as we would have them do unto us, and not do unto others what we would not have them do unto us. These are universal principles, and they become very easy to discern the truth when you're looking at very complicated issues. Okay. So when the question of gay marriage comes up, if you ask yourself, would you like a law on the book that discriminates based on your gender and tells you that you cannot marry the person that you are in love with because of your gender? Would you like that done unto you? I I would bet that your answer is no. And so if you would not do to others what you would not have them do to you, you would not do that. You would do to others what you would have them do to you. And you would, within the same strictures that you're under, allow marriage. It's a very simple thing. Then you apply the other rules. Is this loving your neighbor as yourself? Yes. Is this loving kindness? Is this doing justice? Is this walking humbly before your God? Yes, it fits all three. So there we go. We have fit the universal maxims, which override and supersede everything. Because these are the core principles that we pull from scripture onto to describe what is it that we are to do as people in relationship to our faith, our spirituality, and our religion. What is our obligation to God? Our obligation to God is that we love kindness, do justice, and walk humbly before him. So as long as we are doing those things, we are keeping the law. We are working within the spirit of the law, as Paul tells us that we should do. No longer under the letter, but under the spirit. And we've changed many of the laws of the Old Testament scripture. Many of them. We no longer kill people for wearing clothing made of mixed fabrics. Look at the shirt you're wearing. Is it a blend? Scripture says you should be put to death for that. We no longer kill farmers for planting their crops side by side. We no longer sell our daughters into slavery to pay for our debts. We no longer think slavery is a good idea, which is not just in the law of angels and men in the Jewish scriptures. That's something that Paul tells us is okay. We no longer do any of these things. We have abrogated all of that. We have abrogated the food laws. We have abrogated the ceremonial cleanliness laws. Think about it. Do you know any man who's ever gone to church while his wife is having her period? 
If you do, he's broken the law. He is unclean according to the old law. But we are no longer under the law. The New Testament makes that clear, and the principles of inter, how to inter, inter yeah, that's a hard word for me to say today. The principles for me to interpret the story also tell me that that's no longer true for us today. Because that was a product of a superstitious time. That was a product of a time where people did not understand science and did not have our understandings of philosophy and human rights that we have today. Women in all of scripture are treated as property. We no longer view a woman as property. And rightly so. We have evolved on that issue. We have listened to the call of the Holy Spirit on that issue. And that's what we are to do. So remember, anytime you're hearing a story, whether it's five days old or 5,000 years old, you should look at what is it sociologically trying to tell you? What is the there there? What is the spirit of the story? What social order is it trying to hold up? Once you can see that, you will understand and then be able to judge for yourself whether or not that is actually a society that you would want to live in. That's it for us today. Thank you for listening. If we've helped you, please help us. Tell a friend. Spread the word. Help us get the message out. I just got my notification the other day, and we've finally been added to the Google Play Store. So for people who listen that wise, let me let, let people know. So if you're listening to us new from the Google Play Store, hi, my name's Charlie. You can contact me on Twitter. I'm Wisdom Cries Out on Twitter, or you can find a link to all of our social media accounts, as well as the full archive of this podcast, which has been broken up into nice, handy little teaching bu buckets, because we spend a week on every topic over at our website at wisdomscry.com. And until next time, tomorrow, where we will be talking about the vital function of myth, God bless you and keep you. Amen.